1: In this church, from week to week, we have been going through the great book of Revelation, uh, a verse-by-verse exposition, and this series has been called Crisis. The book of Revelation is written specifically concerning the crisis at the close of the age. And today is the last in the series of the crisis series, the last of the crisis series. The topic today is heaven on earth. Yesterday I attended a seminar that was sponsored by a Fuller seminary which was outstanding. Last night we stayed in Pasadena and while I was in Pasadena last night I thought of a statement that had been said by the great skeptic Ingersoll. And I felt it was appropriate to use today, but I had none of my books with me. And so the statement I'm going to read from Ingersoll, perhaps is the statement according to my translation. Ingersoll was the famous agnostic who became the great critic of institutionalized Christianity. It has been said that he was an atheist. He was never an atheist. But because of the corruptions of an institutionalized Christianity, because he saw that he was a great institution that claimed to be the bride of the Lamb while prostituting the truth of God, he became an antagonist of the visible church. He was an honest man and I think a good man. He was asked to preach at his brother's funeral, which of course would be a task for any person, but especially for a person who was an enemy of the institutionalized church and an agnostic. He said these words, if my memory is working correctly. Listen carefully to the words, they're some of the most powerful, some of the most Pathetic, some of the most wonderful words ever said. Standing beside his brother's coffin, he said, The loved and loving brother, husband, father, friend, died where manhood's mourning had not reached the noontide hour, and while the shadows still were falling towards the west had not passed on life's highway the stone that marks the highest point. But being weary for a moment lay down by the wayside and using his burden for a pillow fell into that dreamless sleep that kisses down his eyelids still. While yet in love with life And raptured with the world, he passed to silence and pathetic dust. Yet, after all, it may be best. Just as in the sunniest hour of all the voyage, while eager winds are kissing every sail to dash against the unseen rock, and in an instant hear the billows roar above, the sunken ship. For whether in mid-sea or among the breakers of the farther shore a wreck at last must mark the end of each and all. And every life, be it's every hour rich with love and every moment jeweled with joy will become at its close a tragedy as deep and dark as can be woven of the warp and woof of mystery and death. Life is a narrow veil between the cold and barren peaks of two eternities. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. We cry aloud, and the only answer is the echo of our wailing cry. From the voiceless lips of our unreplying dead, there comes no word. Yet, yet, in the night of death, hope sees a star. And listening love can hear the rustle of a wing. I want you today, before the service is over, to hear the rustle of a wing, to hear the rustle of the wing of the archangel. And I would hope today, as we talk about heaven on earth, that your hope will see a star. Please turn in the Holy Word to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. What a powerful statement that is. Revelation chapter 21, and verses 1 to 5. My beloved friend, Revelation chapter 21, we're reading today, as is our custom, from the new international version, which is accurate and plain and readable. And I commend it to you. I do not commend to you some of the versions that are coming on the market, even in our own church, which add to the Word of God, which are basically paraphrases because many people are going to use them as the Word of God when in fact they contain the interpretive thoughts of the people who put them together. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is the word of God. We should build our faith upon the word of God. Anything else, I tell you, is cultic. John said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no... There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I want you to know this today, because this is the rustle of a wing. The Bible tells me with absolute clarity and certainty that there is coming a day, my friend, when there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible teaches that the day is coming when paradise is going to come down and rest upon this earth. And the Bible tells me that this earth, which has been the theater of the universe, is going to become the dwelling place of the eternal God. And so the Bible tells me that this life is not all there is. The wonderful news is this, that when you read the book of Genesis, the Bible starts with a new heaven and a new earth. It starts with a perfect world and a perfect people made in the image of God, full of joy and peace and happiness without sin, Obeying the commandments of God and keeping the Holy Sabbath. And when you come to the last book of the Bible, you have the restoration of the kingdom of God. And the Bible finishes with a new heaven and a new earth and a holy, sinless, happy people made in the image of God, keeping the commandments of God and rejoicing in the Sabbath. And so the Bible tells us, that in the night of death hope sees a star and listening love can hear the rustle of a wing. During the last few days, I have lost two precious loved ones in Australia. Loved ones who have for me the most tender associations. My Uncle Reg, when I was a boy of fifteen, I went into the northern part of Australia, into the tropics, into North Queensland, up to the Burdekin River. You know it, David. And Gaya, Do you know it? Well, David does. Mm-hmm. Up from the little town of Eyre, mm, 40 miles up the Burdekin, where the crocodiles were in those days. And, to ra- and still are. Mm-hmm. And to raise money to go to Avondale College, I worked for my uncle who owned a bulldozer business. And I drove a bulldozer for 16 hours a day, starting at 4 o'clock in the morning and finishing at 8 o'clock at night. Did this for about six months. Marvelous experience. In those days, thank God, we did not have a welfare system that turned people into slaves. I want to tell you, the greatest blessing outside of salvation that God gave to me was the truth that work and manual work is noble. And if a person is afraid to work and get his hands dirty working, he hasn't been liberated. He is a slave to socialism. One of the greatest tragedies in America, Alder and Mrs. Curry, is how socialism, has ravaged this great land. Since the days of Lyndon Bain Johnson, this country has spent $5,000 billion on welfare. And the cities are worse than ever in the history of the world. And we have taught people it is an honourable thing not to take care of their own and to bring children into the world and expect the state to take care of them. It is the greatest curse to the land of America. It is the greatest curse to any person who gets tied up with that system. You say it is a strong thing to say, I wish that every person here might be free. And understand the dignity of hard labor and hard work. And when I was 15, I worked 16 hours a day out in the tropical sun. Got a good suntan. May find it hard to believe. <laughs> and I worked for my Uncle Reg, who taught me the dignity of hard work. I worked for $20 a week. Which in those days was not real bad money. But my Uncle Reg died a few, few days ago. Just after he died, my Aunt Molly died, a kind of person you would never have met who went to Albion Church in Brisbane, generous, a wonderful aunt for a little boy to have because she had the capacity to hug people and to kiss them. When she was a young woman, her husband died and she was left to bring up the children. Something she did that was marvelous, and I can still remember it, because she was doing it when I was a teenager, she took into her home literally hundreds of girls who had babies out of wedlock, and she protected them, and she loved them, and she took care of the babies, and she did it out of her own personal savings, and often she went hungry to feed the babies. She was a kind and a gracious and a wonderful person. I can think of my Aunt Molly only with the tenderest memories today. She was always happy and her door was always open. Fifteen years ago, she suffered a terrible stroke. And she never recovered, never spoke again. She was placed in one of our Adventist nursing homes, I think down at Sandgate, that area. And there she lived, or tried to live for 15 years. She could never communicate or speak to her loved ones. And a few days ago she had another stroke, and mercifully she died. The last 15 years of her life were filled with suffering. And as one stands and looks at a person like that who was once a young beautiful girl and sees the end result, an emaciated figure of 50 or 60 pounds, living a hell. One asks the question, what is the purpose to the mystery of life? One cynic spoke about that dumb thing that turns the handle of this vain, frivolous show. Talking about God. and Talking about that dumb thing, that thing that doesn't feel. But the Bible teaches that the hand that turns this world is a hand that was nailed to the cross and who loves us. The Bible teaches that there is a purpose to existence And there is purpose to to existence, my friend, because Molly and many others like her are going to wake up in heaven. Is this all there is? The Bible says, God says, write it down, John, because these words are what? Mm, Come on. God said to John, write it down, John, because these words are true and faithful. Did you know that the politicians in Washington now are discussing, will they fulfill their campaign promises? And some people are saying, why should they be discussing it? And the reason that they're debating about it is because it has become today almost normative behavior in the world not to fulfill your promise. That a person can make promises and say things, but nobody expects him to say, listen to me. The mark of a Christian, let us not talk about the politicians or the way that the world does business, but when a Christian does business, his word is sufficient. You do not need an attorney, my friend, between Christians to work out a contract, though today it seems as though it is necessary because a man's word is no longer binding. And this shows the demoralization of humanity. The Bible says that those who tell lies and who break their promises will have their part in the lake of fire. But the Bible tells us that our God always keeps his word. All of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. And in the book of Revelation, God says, there is going to be a new heaven, and there's going to be a new earth, and the new Jerusalem is going to come down and rest upon this earth, and God's people are going to be a part of the kingdom of God. And God says, Write it down, John, because these words are true and faithful. Would you notice Revelation 21, Revelation 21 and verse 6? Revelation chapter 21, please. And verse 6 He said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, or the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. The Bible tells us that this great and wonderful salvation is not given to the person who is self-righteous, but it is given to the person who thirsts after the righteousness of God. And the Bible tells me that heaven and the kingdom of God and all these glories, all of these things are given to the person who is hungry and thirsty. You may say today, Pastor Carter, I despair of ever being saved. The message of God today to you is this, Salvation is the free gift of God, and if you're thirsty today, God says, come and drink. And God gives us justification and mercy and heaven, not because we deserve it, but because heaven is a gift. Please notice verse 7 and 8 of the same chapter. He who overcomes will inherit all this. So we're not talking about cheap grace that says, come to Christ and do what you want to do. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. These are strong verses. We believe in grace upon grace in this church. We do not believe that we can ever be saved by our works. We believe that forgiveness is for the thirsty person. But the Bible here describes all of humanity as the overcomers and the overcome. And when a person is saved by the grace of God, the Bible teaches that the Spirit of God so enters into the life of that person that he becomes a new person. And the Bible says that heaven is for the saved and heaven is for those whose lives have been washed as white as snow in the blood of the Lamb. Would you notice the next verse? Verse 9, down to 16. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. My friend, is there anything more beautiful than a bride, David? We've had some beautiful weddings in this church and other places. Is there anything more beautiful than a bride who is virtuous and who comes into the church adorned for her husband? I've taken hundreds of weddings, but I still feel a little choked up when I see a bride coming into the church. There's a number of reasons I feel choked up, and one is that I think my girls will soon possibly get married and it's going to cost so much money. <laughs> so when you see preachers like myself, when they see a bride coming to the church and they get misty-eyed, a thought that has penetrated their subconscious is, God have mercy How can I even afford the dress? (laughs) A wedding has become a costly thing. The wedding of the Son of God is a costly thing. The wedding of the people of God is a costly thing. It costs the blood of the Son of God. And so the Bible says there is coming a marriage feast. I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. My friend, how can the Lord Jesus Christ be married to a city, I ask you? Would not a city with its crystal spires and streets of gold be a rather cold thing to marry? But the Bible tells me, inside the city are the people of God. And So the Bible is talking about the home of the people of God. Verse 11, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. They represent the Old Testament. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, including the name of St. Paul, because he was the twelfth apostle. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia or 15,000 miles in length, and as wide and high as it is long. That is strange, is it not? The city, have you ever thought of this? The city of God is a perfect cube. And so this leads us to the question, are we to take all of these verses completely literally? If the city is 15,000 miles along each side, or 375 miles on each side, the Bible says it is the same height. A city 375 miles high? Or 1,500 miles high? What is God trying to tell us? As we read on in this inspired account of the city of God, it talks about gates of pearl and streets of gold. What is God telling us in this passage? Let me tell you what God is telling us that the city of God is greater and more glorious than the human mind can realize or contemplate, greater than the imagination of any one of us. And when it says that the city is a perfect cube, it is an allusion to the most holy place in the temple, because the most holy place was a perfect cube. And this city, my friend, is the holy of holies. It is the very place where God himself is going to dwell. And it is greater than anything you and I can conceive or or understand. And it is going to be the home of the people of God. And it is big enough for every one of us. This is what God is telling us. Would you read on just a little more? before we make a commentary on it. Verse 17, He measured its wall. It was 144 cubits thick. That's probably about 250 feet. By man's measurement, which the angel was using, the wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. I got a little shocked the other day. I was watching a program on PBS. I think it was PBS or the Discovery Channel or AE or some channel. It was talking about diamonds. Would you like to know why diamonds are expensive? Diamonds are expensive because it is a monopoly and only few diamonds are allowed to come on the world market. But one of the most common minerals on the face of the earth is a diamond. Did you know that? In South Africa the diamonds are so plentiful it showed in the movie that they had native South Africans crawling on their hands and their knees across a valley picking up diamonds as big as your thumb and dropping them into tin cans. Off the coast of South Africa, the diamonds are so thick, they have vacuum cleaners to vacuum them off the seafloor. They've discovered in Australia, in the inland of Australia, a tremendous valley, thousands of square miles covered with diamonds. And diamonds today that are sold commercially for $5,000, if all the diamonds came on the marketplace, that same diamond that looks so exquisite and beautiful is worth about $5. The day is going to come when God is going to build a city out of jewels. Because God is going to give to the people of God everything that seems to be so precious. And what God is trying to tell us here is this, that the things that people today would die for, one day they're going to walk on. And the glory of that place is not that it has golden streets and foundations made up of every precious stone. The glory of the place is the king who lives there. Now read on with me, please. Verse 19. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Some people are going to love this city. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of... That's going to come out of a big oyster. Mm Mm-hmm. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Do you know how a pearl is made? Hmm? You know how a pearl is made, don't you? How is a pearl made? It's made with an oyster. Hmm? It's made by... Irritation. Mm -hmm. I heard a preacher yesterday, he said God had given him the gift of irritation. (laughs) Um, A pearl is made by irritation that becomes suffering. The people, my friend, to enter that holy place, enter it through the door of suffering. Every Christian is called to suffer for his Christ. That is why I have no time at all for the doctrine of the prosperity gospel that says when God calls us to be his children, God calls us to a life free of pain and suffering. The Bible says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. And the Bible says the gate into the city of God is through the pearl and the gate of suffering. And let me say this to every person here today. If you and I are not called to suffer for Christ, it is because we do not have true faith in God. If the enemy is not opposing what you're doing, if you're preaching the gospel, it is because there is something wrong with the gospel you're preaching. You and I ought to know this, that whenever a man or a woman sets his face face to the kingdom of God, there'll be opposition from the servants of Satan. And every person in this church who is true to Christ and who desires to preach the everlasting gospel, every person there will enter into the city of God through the pearl of suffering. Away with this idea that says, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. And when the church of God believes that the path to the kingdom of God is an easy path, then the church has fallen from grace. This is a city, my friend, which is reserved for those who are companions in the sufferings of Christ. So they go through these gates, and these gates are made of pearls. Is it all literal? I think God is trying to tell us it's better than anything you and I can appreciate. Verse 22. People say, do you understand all of this? No, I don't. But I do know that our God is going to do something which is a million times better than I'm hoping for. Mm -hmm. Verse 22, notice it in the Bible. I did not see a temple in the city. No temple in this city. There is no sanctuary in this city. Why is there no temple in the city of God? There is no mediating high priest in that city. There is no longer... A bloody sacrifice in that city. You know why? Because there is no sin. Sin is finished, and the people of God are home in glory. And the Bible says there's no temple there. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, it doesn't say that it doesn't have a sun or a moon. But it says it has no need of the sun or the moon. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the nations of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. Why will the gates never be shut? In this world, people shut the gates. All of the cities, the ancient cities that had tremendous walls, they had those walls for one purpose, my friend, for the security of the inhabitants, to save the inhabitants from the wicked people outside the city. But the Bible says, this city has got 12 great gates, but the gates are never going to be closed. Why? No crime. Yeah. No people buying guns. Won't need a police force. None of those things. Because there's going to be no more sin. So the Bible says the people of God are going to enjoy a perfect security. Verse 26 The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This text tells me that there are only two paths that we can choose. The path of holiness or the path of sin and deception. The Bible here talks about lying. I noticed when I was studying this, preparing the sermon this week, going through these chapters, I was somewhat alerted by the fact that lying is mentioned so often. It says, outside the city are liars. It talks about fornicators outside the city. It talks about idolaters. But over and over again, it talks about liars being outside the city. It seems to me that lying is a very pernicious and awful sin. Perhaps one of the most deadly of all sins. And the worst thing, are you all listening to this? Because we live in an age of liars. We live in an age where people make promises but break their promises at the drop of a hat for financial gain. The Bible says the person who's going to enter into God's holy hill is the person who swears to his own hurt. When you and I have given an undertaking, we ought to die rather than lie. The Bible talks about those who live and who love a lie, and the worst fate that can ever happen to a man is to believe in his own liars in his own lies. Did you know that millions of people today become pathological liars and they will lie and they believe that everybody else is wrong and they are being persecuted and the world is against them and they believe that their lies are the truth. It is almost impossible for the Spirit of God to help a pathological liar. Because before I can be saved, I must recognize the reality of my own sinful condition. And some people find it virtually impossible to recognize that the fault is with themselves and therefore they must lie to cover their own guilt. And so the Bible says that the people who are cast into the lake of fire are those who make and practice lies. Listen to me. A Christian ought to be transparent before the world. A Christian should not be a smart politician. A Christian should not be a devious person. He should not be a shrewd person. A Christian who is saved will be an open and honest people. What you see is what you will get. And even though that person is imperfect, covered by the blood of Jesus, he will enter into the gates, through the gates into the city. And so these verses are written to teach us the importance of holiness. Revelation 22, the last chapter, a wonderful chapter, the river of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, no pollution, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, Yielding its fruit every month. Many commentators point out that there is the river, and on both sides of the river, there is an avenue of trees, not a single tree. But the tree of life is made up of an avenue of trees on both sides of the river. And everything is so verdant and so productive that the fruit comes on not once a year but every month and the bible says the leaves of the tree notice it the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the leaves of the tree the bible tells us that the people of god will never never die because they eat the fruit of the tree of life. What does that do with the doctrine of the immortality of the soul? If man was naturally immortal, if man had an immortal soul, why should he eat of the tree of life? But the Bible says that man forever will have conditional immortality. God alone is immortal, and even when I am in the kingdom of God, my immortality is dependent upon the life of God. And so the Bible says that the saints of God, free of sin, will eat the leaves of the tree of life. There was a tree of life, the Bible says, in the Garden of Eden. God took that tree away, one day he's going to bring it back and the people of God are going to eat it and never, never die. Read on. No longer will there be any curse because there's no sin. The curse comes because of sin. If you say to me today, there's a curse in my life. I've got a curse in my life. Maybe it's because you've got sin in your life. You say, I'm cursed. God is mad with me. There's something, God is mad with me and, and I can't get over this problem. I say to you, you may get over that problem when you get rid of sin. The Bible says there's no more curse because there's no more sin. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will, will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. The Old Testament has a text, I think it's in the book of Isaiah, that says they will see the king in his beauty. Now come down to verse 5. There will be no more night. That's in the city. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Who does the reigning? Who does the reigning, though, on this earth? Who reigns? This is a special term. Who reigns? A king reigns. Billy Clinton doesn't reign. President Clinton doesn't reign. Because he's not a king. But a king or a queen reigns. And in this city, all of the saints of God are going to be kings and queens. They're going to reign. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I'd heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you, And with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book, worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. And then it talks about the close of earthly probation when the door of mercy closes. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. The Bible says that before Jesus comes, there goes out a decree from the sanctuary of God that fixes for time and eternity the destiny of every living soul. Therefore, turn to God today, is the message of Holy Scripture. The day is coming when your destiny is going to be forever fixed. And that is why the Bible says, today. Verse 12 and onwards. Verse 12 and onwards. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. The old KJV that I love so much and have used all my life. It says, blessed are those who keep his commandments. And that is not a bad translation. Because the people who have their robes washed will keep the commandments. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, that means the perverts, not literal dogs. Beverly says, our dog's going to be there. It's a French poodle. Outside are the dogs, but it's talking symbolically. Those who practice magic arts, those who look at the astrology charts, those who go along to see answers. Those who play with the occult are going to be outside. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This verse is not saying that murderers will not be in heaven, they will be. It is not saying lies will not be in heaven, because they will. It is not saying... The people who have practiced the magic arts of the occult are not going to be in heaven because they will be, but they'll be there because they've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and they've turned to God. Amen. You see? This is talking about the transforming friendship of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice uh, this other verse. Verse 16, and onwards, the last words of Holy Scripture that contain an invitation, a warning and a promise. Now because we've come to the climax of this great and marvellous series, we're going to do something special. We're going to stand and read together verse 16 down to 21. The last warning, the last invitation, the last promise of Holy Scripture. And this finishes the canon of Scripture. My friend, here finishes the final authority in the church. This is the end of the canon of Scripture. What we cannot establish in Holy Scripture, we ought to let lie. We do not turn to other writings even though they be precious. The Word of God is sufficient for everything we need to know of importance. It is the mark of a cult and a heretic to add to the Word of God. Do not add to the Word of God. Do not take away from it. We're going to read verse 16 to 21 in unison. Together. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift to the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. Continue to stand. The last word of sacred scripture, a promise, a warning. God says, don't add to my word. Don't set up any other authorities. Don't tamper with the sacred canon of scripture. A dreadful warning. Then there is the great promise, he who is thirsty. It doesn't say, he who is wealthy And he who is righteous, but the Bible says, he who is thirsty, let him come. And the the Bible says, then let the person who's invited, who's heard the good news, let him say, come. And the Bible says, Jesus says, let him take the water of life freely.